session three, we're gonna talk about defining the craft a little bit. And again, we're gonna be building on what we were just talking about with wrong examples of hermeneutics. And now we're gonna be talking a little bit more about how do we appropriately practice hermeneutics. And it's, it's honestly, it's not too terribly complex. Uh, and then it's just gonna be sharpening the skill over a long a lifetime of study. So the first thing that's probably worth saying is, uh, I'm going off of a theological assumption here, so I'm gonna tell you that on the front end, which is that scripture was inspired by God through human authors, and that the Holy Spirit did not possess human authors and make them say things that they were not aware of, and that he did not uh, overcome them or whisper things directly into their ears that they did not understand, and then they just wrote down that the Holy Spirit came alongside human authors with their understanding, with their vocabulary, with their language, so that what they were writing was divinely inspired scripture. The reason I say that is because whatever the text means is whatever the author of the text intended the text to mean. And that's not a difference between the divine and the human author. The divine and the human author share the same meaning as they're working in the text. So it's not that the human author is writing something and the divine author has something else in mind that the text that's happening in the text that the human author has no idea about, that the human author and the divine author are working together to work through and inspire scripture. The reason I say that is because all of the, the linchpin of our understanding of a text, I'm going to argue, is whatever the author says that the text means or whatever the author is conveying as he's making his argument or his practice. And so that idea uh, is going to inform a lot of different things. Um, but primarily, it's a refutation of the reader response idea of understanding scripture, which is, I read it, and whatever I think it means, that is now what the text means, devoid of what the author wanted it to mean, or devoid of its context or its locality in scripture. Uh, if you want a technical term for this idea, it's called the grammatico-historical hermeneutic. You've probably heard us use this language before. What's interesting to note, uh, one author will point out that the grammatical historical hermeneutic is actually how we all engage in hermeneutics on a regular basis in communication. So for example, if you were to go to an article today and you were to pull up you know, a Wall Street Journal or something like that and read the front page article, you would be expected to know the historical context in which that article is being written in, the moment in time in history. For example, the front page article is likely gonna have something to do with the Supreme Court decision that just happened uh, yesterday, right? So because of that, uh, and you know that context, you're living in America where that context has happened, the Wall Street Journal is assuming that of you, and as they write, they're probably gonna write from two different political parties' opinions or give uh, implications state to state. All of that expects that you understand the relationship between states and local government, local government and national government, that you understand the difference between a Republican and Democrat, pro-choice and pro-life. All these things are gonna be assumed if you were to go to the, Washington, uh, the Wall Street Journal and read their article. That is a historical grounding of whatever is being written. If someone was to dig up that article 2,000 years from now, somehow it's preserved, and they were to dig it up, they cannot say that that article now means something totally different just because their context is different 2,000 years removed. The article still means what the author wrote when he wrote it or she wrote it in their context at that moment in time. Also, the, so it's not only historical, not only is history important when we're understanding, so our current context is important in this example, but also the, gr the grammar or the syntax or the vocabulary and sentences that the author uses is their means of conveying their idea. So that's important that we know not only uh, that la how language can be used, that there are things as, such as synonyms or sarcasm or tone, uh, but we also know that an author will communicate their argument to their audience by using language to convey that. In the same way that as I'm talking to you right now, you're following what I'm saying, you're understanding what I'm saying, and you're trying to probably track with the idea 
or the language of what I'm using. Language is just a medium for me to communicate an idea. But that's important to say because if I was to go, you know, again, 50 years in the future and someone was to take that article and read it, maybe a, a definition of a certain English word has shifted. We cannot say that that English word that has at its current definition is now read back into the text and it now means what it, what it currently means to us and it meant that the whole time. That's an inappropriate use of language. A common example of this, let's say a misunderstanding of grounding grammar and syntax in history in appropriate context, is if someone says God is love, and they say that today in the 21st century, the term love today means something totally different to us, not entirely different, but so fundamentally different to us than it did to a first century Jewish audience, that it's almost, uh, it's almost a mistake to say God is love and simply leave it at that. There's so much explaining, there's so much cultural grounding, there's so much biblical grounding that needs to happen for that term to mean what it actually means in the text, that we cannot simply say God is love and leave it at that. Because we know people will say God is love, and what they mean when they say that is, and they and love is what I say love is. And because love is how I use it or how our culture uses it today. And that's not what scripture is communicating when it says God is love. There's partially, there's some partial truth to saying God is love and not fail, and failing uh, to ground that, because God indeed is loving, he is a loving being, but he's not loving in the same way that our culture is loving, and by that I mean tolerant and accepting of all things. That's not what it means when it says God is love. And if we misunderstand culture and syntax and grammar, we'll make a mistake when we say God is love and we fail to explain that any further. That's one example of how we could go wrong here. So how then do we appropriately understand the meaning of the author in their historical context? Well, it's, it's a pretty simple system, uh, and you can apply this primarily to the letters in the New Testament. That's the best place to practice this kind of thing. And then uh, working to other genres of scripture, you can kind of sharpen your skills as well. So the first thing you want to know is who is the author who is writing this text. The second thing you want to know is who is their audience that they're writing it to. And the third thing you want to know is what is their argument that they're writing about. So you want to know the author, you want to know who they're writing to, and you want to know what they're arguing for. So how do you know who the author is? Many times, the author will just simply introduce themselves on the front end of any kind of letter in the New Testament. Almost all of Paul's letters start out with, I, Paul, slave of Christ Jesus, you know, and then he kind of gets in the letter from there. And sometimes even in his clothes, he'll say, I, Paul, write with my own hands. So that's a clear indication of who the author was. Sometimes we lean on scholarship to know who the author is. Um, and that's not scholarship that's devoid from actual study of scripture, but Sometimes we don't know intuitively who the author is, so we trust biblical scholars who have told us who that author is. And there's some room for play in that. There's some authorship that gets debated. Um, but who the author is is pretty important. The second thing is who is their audience? So who are they writing to? That's important because it grounds the vocabulary, the language, and how everything is understood as it's being said. For example, uh, when, when uh, Matthew writes his Sermon on the Mount and he talks about the, the teachings of Jesus to the people who Jesus is teaching to, uh, Jesus never at any point in time mentions uh, homosexuality as being sinful in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the corpus of what it means to be a holy Christian living and pursuing godliness. He says that adultery is sinful, but he doesn't say, you know, homosexuality is sinful. So can we therefore conclude that the author Jesus to his audience is communicating a neutral stance on homosexuality? We cannot because the author and the audience both live in a first century Jewish context in which the idea of that being an okay thing was so far removed from the context that it can't even be, it's not even addressed because it's so far removed from its context, right? Today, we would say, oh, he never, Jesus never says homosexuality is sinful. And yes, that's true, but 
it's so far removed from its context that you know it, it it doesn't really mean anything for a first century Jew not to mention homosexuality because it's just not something that they're debating or talking about. So the author and the audience are important. And then the third thing is the argument that they're making. And so this is, the, simply put, this is following their language, following their vocabulary, following what they say as they say it and as they develop their thought. That's how you understand what they mean. So knowing who they are, who they're writing to, and then, and then what they're writing about, which is just reading it, that will give you a good grasp on a sound way to interpret any text of scripture. And to follow an argument, you cannot simply skip around from chapters and verses and sentences all around the place to find your favorite verses in scripture and read those. You need to read an argument from beginning to end and usually revisit it several times in order to really fully understand it. So if you're reading Paul in Romans, you need to read Romans starting at chapter one, verse one, all the way to the end of chapter 16. And usually you need to do that a couple of times before you can start making any big significant claims about any one particular part of Romans, right? You, and that reason is because you're grounding any interpretation has to be in line with the overall argument of this letter. And to understand the argument of the letter, I need to have read the letter and I need to have read the letter several times usually. So I, whenever I go to interpret any one verse, I know, okay, overall, this is what he's arguing. At this particular point, the nuance he's drawing out is, let's say, sinfulness or wickedness before God or righteousness in Christ or things like that. But he draws those things out as part of his overall argument to the church in Rome. So that's one example, but again, the epistles are a great example of this. Another example that's not an epistle, but uh, is a pretty easy text to, to ground this in is the Torah. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by Moses to the Israelite people to explain or underscore or to guard the holiness of God and his law, how he would have his people to live. Knowing that context is very important. People try to rip the Torah from what it means by saying that Moses was indeed not the author. But Jesus says Moses is the author, so I'm not going to debate that right now. But knowing the author, knowing their audience, helps us to follow their argument. So Genesis, Moses is writing about Adam in the fall. He's writing about Noah. He's writing about Abraham, the covenant people and the promise. Then this same Moses is writing later in Exodus about God's faithful deliverance of his people, God's blessing of his people, God putting his curse on those who disobey him and his blessing on those who obey him. Those are all things that are understood in the overall argument of Moses to be a faithful people to a God who's already preceded by being faithful to them. So knowing the audience and the argument helps us to understand kind of the whole thrust of the first five books of scripture. Uh, one, one author would say it this way. He would say to understand the intention of the human author is to understand the intention of the divine author. So if we go to scripture and we read it and we ascertain what the human author is saying, we are ascertaining what the divine author is saying. It is not as though the human author says one thing and then God kind of speaks out of the side of his mouth in a different direction with this kind of fuller, deeper, unclear sense that was not present in the original. So that's an important thing to note. Knowing the human author, what he's saying is knowing what the divine author is saying. So uh, once we then establish the meaning of a text, whatever the author is arguing to his audience, now we can begin to apply that text of scripture to a various amount of situations. Scripture has one meaning, one correct meaning, but it has usually a, a limitless amount of applications depending on situation, circumstance, time of life. Scripture is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. It speaks to us as Christians as a living document, but that does not mean that its meaning changes. But what that does mean is that it speaks to us in new and fresh ways by the grace of God's Spirit. So for example, if you're reading through Proverbs and you're reading about uh, the wisdom that is present in uh, being a hard, diligent worker, 
that will mean something different to you as a reader when you are 10 years old, as opposed to when you're 30 years old, as opposed to when you're 65 years old and you're retired. Because Proverbs never says, you know, you retire out of work. It kind of always talks about work as being a blessing and working hard, right? But the meaning of that text never changes. But as you move through different stages of life, how that meaning applies to you as a reader will invariably change because you are changing as a reader. That does not mean that you can, in your stage of life, influence the meaning of the text in any way. But what you're separating is the interpretation of the text from its application to your life. And again, it's important that we draw those distinctions. The meaning is informed by its context. It's informed by the definition of words. It's informed by what the author is overall saying. Uh, maybe another way to, to spell out the importance of like knowing the author, audience, and their argument um, is by saying that when, when we say that a, a word means something, uh, we cannot insist invariably that the word means the same thing in every single context that it's ever used. A great example of this is the difference between Paul and James and their use of the term justification. So Paul writes and he says, you know, Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. And James says that uh, Abraham was justified because he was circumcised, right, in, in keeping with the law. And so uh, if the word means the same thing in both cases, what happens is you've now said this scripture disagrees with that scripture. And now you've created quite a problem for an infallible document. But we know that words have definitions that vary widely based on context. We even have this in the English language. Uh, an example that one of my professors uses is uh, if I say that I have a cell phone, uh, I cannot assume that if you understand the word cell, invariably the same in all contexts, that you're going to understand what I mean because cell could mean uh, a prison cell. It could mean a blob of protoplasm that you know is the basic function of all human life. Uh, cell can mean a whole bunch of things. And so if you insist on only one definition every time a word is used, you're going to misunderstand what I mean when I say I have a cell phone, or I'm going to make a call on my cell, right? You're going to misunderstand what I'm talking about. And that's because you insist in ineffectually on one definition. So words have definitions, but those definitions can change based on context. The other thing uh, to understand meaning as informed by context when Paul writes, uh, or when any author is writing, again, we're looking just right now at the epistles as an example. Um, whatever the author is overall saying in scripture helps us to understand what he's arguing in any one point in scripture. So Scripture is not just any one letter or one author, but usually there's authors who've written several times. So for example, when Paul is arguing uh, in Romans about uh, depravity and sin and justification by faith, Paul actually agrees with that argument later when he writes in Galatians, he agrees with that argument when he writes in Ephesians. All of these letters of Paul are his corpus, all of the things he's written, help us understand what he's arguing in other places or other letters because they help us get inside his mind and how he thinks. So when we're trying to understand the context, we not only want to know the uh, the specific words that he's using, but also how he uses those words, not only in this letter, but also in other places in scripture. And we also want to know uh, maybe overall canon of scripture. How is these terms, ideas, or uh, things played with in the whole canon of scripture? So uh, in the New Testament, when, uh, when a topic or a theology is introduced, it's not altogether separated from the Old Testament background of that topic because the Old Testament informs contextually what's understood in the New Testament for something to mean. And we cannot, uh, as, as some people would say, we have to unhitch the Old and New Testament from one another. We can't do that because the whole canon of scripture informs what we mean when we say righteousness. It informs what we mean when we say covenant. It informs what we mean when we say a whole host of things. And we can't just go, oh, it only means this one thing in this context. And that's what I insist it means, devoid of any other context of scripture. So the whole canon was arranged, not just as one letter from one author, but a whole diverse book with poetry and wisdom and narrative and all those things. 
and they're all important for understanding the other parts of them. So it's arranged, not only is scripture written and inspired divinely, but it's also arranged uh, in a way that it was preserved faithfully, we would say, from, uh, from all time. Uh, the reason all of that is important, context is so important, is because uh, to take one verse and to take it out of context and to form a whole doctrinal system on that one verse is an extremely dangerous kind of thing to do. Um, uh, there's plenty of examples of this. Uh, one example that comes to mind is the times when we would say we have less certainty about one verse as opposed to other verses based on uh, what manuscripts we have access to. And so if we, fa- if we base our whole doctrine of the Trinity out of only one verse, like uh, 1 John chapter 5, where there's a little debate about whether that verse uh, says one thing or another, or there's a verse included or missing in some places. If we have our whole doctrine of the Trinity hinging on this one verse, as some people will insist, the whole doctrine of the Trinity hinges on that verse. And some people would say, well, in earlier manuscripts, that verse doesn't even exist. Now we have a problem because the doctrine of the Trinity is a foundational doctrine and uh, it's, it's apparently hinging on only one verse. But all of the doctrine that we believe as Christians, that's, that's grounding, foundational, never hinges on only one verse. And if someone ever takes a verse and says that we're going to form a whole doctrinal system out of this one verse, and sometimes even in many cases a misunderstanding of that verse, uh, you can guarantee that that is not a sound way to approach systematic theology. Uh, one of the reasons this is true is because scripture is, is clear. Uh, the reformers would talk about the perspicuity or the clarity of scripture. And uh, this is another way to understand hermeneutics. So if, let's say we're, we're coming across scripture, we're trying to read it in its context. We get to something and it seems very confusing and we're having a hard time making sense of it. Um, what's good about scripture is there are unclear things in scripture, but we can always interpret the unclear things in light of the clear places in scripture where things are evidentially spoken of. For example, uh, Galatians 3.28 is an example of a passage that is often misused. This is the passage that says, there is now neither in Christ, neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, and male or female. We are all one in Christ. And some people would say, well, what that verse means is uh, men and women roles are now done away with, right? And unfortunately, uh, for the people who argue that, it's not what that verse means. Uh, partially because if you were to press that in on every situation, we would say that there's no difference even in ethnicities. And that's a, just a plain denial of, of biology. There's neither now Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. Uh, but more so, that's an unclear verse or maybe a difficult to understand verse. But we have actually Genesis 1 and 2, which speaks very clearly about the beauty of God's design in male and female creation. And so Genesis 1 and 2, a very clear text, helps us to understand a much more difficult text, Galatians 3.28. And there's all examples of this all over the place, right? Where we talk about uh, tensions in the text or things that seem difficult for us. We always interpret unclear things in light of clear things in Scripture. So that's a hermeneutical principle. And the last thing uh, that we probably need to pay attention to is the genre of any text of scripture. So not only uh, who's writing it, but in what form are they writing it, okay? There's a difference if you get a letter in the mail versus when you get a text message from someone versus if someone sends you a meme, right? All of these are genres of communication and there's different uh, rules of engagement in each of these different genres, right? You're probably expecting humor or sarcasm in a meme. You might be expecting something more serious or more heartfelt in a letter. And we kind of assume these things in these genres of communication, and we're expected to do so. It's, it's an appropriate way to interpret something. So in narrative, we're supposed to read that differently than when we read, for example, uh, epistle that plainly lays something out in the New Testament. And scripture agrees with itself, so it's not going to contradict. And so if we, know the narr- if we know what genre we're in, and we know something that's unclear, like maybe morally questionable, we can rely on the more clear parts of scripture, the plain teachings, and we could say, oh, this it clarifies whether that was good or bad. But we cannot make a genre try to do something it was not intended to do. 
And so all of this, uh, I want to look at just one example uh, from the text. This one's going to come out of Revelation chapter 3. And this is uh, an example of trying to use appropriate hermeneutics to understand a text. And the reason I choose this again is because I've uh, heard misuse of this text before. So I just want to point this out to you as maybe a case study example. So Revelation chapter 3, and I'm going to read uh, just verse 20. And here's what, here's what it says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So Revelation 3.20, uh, I've often heard used in the context of evangelism. Uh, that, you know, someone is trying to present the gospel to someone and say, you know, Jesus is just standing at the door of your heart and knocking. And he wants to come into your heart if you'll only accept him as Lord and Savior. Uh, and then he will save you from your sins. And there's, uh, this kind of falls in that category we, earlier we talked about, the difference between orthodoxy and accuracy. Is it an orthodox statement to say that Jesus is seeking to save lost people? Yeah, it's an orthodox statement, right? Uh, is, it, is it an orthodox thing to say that we must confess him with our mouths in order for uh, that salvation to be, to, to be real and vindicated? Yes, that is true that uh, we confess him and then uh, we, are, we are saved uh, in that profession. Uh, those are both orthodox ideas. But if you look at the context of this, this verse, um, Jesus is uh, writing uh, now through the Apostle John. And he's uh, talking specifically to a church that has essentially taken Jesus out of their doctrine, out of their theology, out of their passion, and kind of kicked him to the curb. And so writing specifically to a church audience, not to a non-believing audience, he's saying, I stand at the door and knock, and I want to once again dine with you and be with you. So this is not uh, John uh, using this verse as an, uh, a verse for evangelism or for someone to accept Jesus into their hearts, but rather the verse in context is dealing more so with uh, Jesus, who is at the center of Christian worship, having been kind of thrust out of the passion of that worship. And he's essentially saying to the church in Laodicea, you need to let me back into the center of Christian worship. You need to let me back into the Lord's Supper. You need to let me back into your hearts, your, your love, your passions. And so Jesus is essentially standing at the door, knocking, begging his way back into the church to be the rightful seat at the church. So again, it's an orthodox idea to say that people need to accept Jesus. It's an unorthodox idea to say that that's what this verse is, is talking about. And the way we know that, uh, again, you don't have to take my word for it. You could read, starting from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through, and you'll see that uh, John is writing to the churches. He, each church has a particular problem that's being addressed. And in this case, the church in Laodicea has a particular problem that's being addressed, right? Um, he's saying they're neither hot nor cold, and he would that they would be either one or the other, that they would be who they were supposed to be. And so in that context, he's giving them this exhortation, I stand at the door and knock. Let me back in. Be, be once again who you ought to be, the church. And so in context, when we interpret it that way, we know who the author is to the audience, and we know what he's arguing for. It helps us to safeguard from often misinterpretation of verses like this. So um, I'll pause there as an example of, uh, let's say, uh, defining the craft, and we'll talk more later about um, how do we put this into practice on a more daily basis.